Welcome to Books, Broads, and Booze. This is your host, Jamie. And I'm Monica. Hello, hello. Hello, friends. Woohoo. This month we have the wonderful story of The Princess Bride. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited about this episode that I did buy an illustrated edition, and it's really pretty. It was definitely worth the purchase. Yay. It is very pretty. It's very nice. It's a lot nicer than my garage sale find that I used to have. <laughs> I just have the ebook now cuz I really like ebooks. It's so much easier to have like dozens of books and one little thing you just open up and actual books laying around everywhere staring at me, judging me like, like you said you were going to read me next. I'm like, I don't know. I will. <laughs> I agree. After you got me that little Kindle, Oh my gosh, I love it. Because at night when I work, when everyone's asleep, it's dark in the house, but I can still read. It's fantastic. <laughs> I know, because I like to read in bed at night, and it's hard for me to see, because I'm older now. And I'm like, oh, the print's too small, it's too dark in here. I'm like, my little, I can make it brighter, I can make it dimmer, I can make it bigger. I'm like, yeah, this, this is so much easier. Technology. <laughs> <laughs> So we have some discussion questions that I got from a website called readinggroupguides.com. Yeah, and we're going to mix it up a little this time because I feel like Jamie is the princess bride expert. And so I'm going to read the discussion questions this time. And this is, what, our third installment of books that are movies? And we were really excited about this one. Yeah. All right. So we'll start with question one. William Goldman states that he is adapting The Princess Bride from a novel written by the great Florinese writer S. Morgenstern. Do you believe that there really is such a person? Why or why not? And why do you think Goldman might want to confuse readers about this point? Is that confusion necessary for the kind of story he is trying to tell? So I believe that S. Morgenstern is not real that he made that up so that he could narrate the story and be part of the story. And I don't know what his goal was for that. Like, I don't know, maybe that would be more fun, more personal to be a character in it as well. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like it kind of, um, it makes it, he wants us to believe, not believe, it's almost like he wants us to believe it's a real story, but yet it's also kind of obvious that it's not. So it is really creative. <laughs> I love the story when he's talking about it. as a kid. My dad read me this story all the time. And I thought it was so great. And I gave it to my son to pass it on because stories are what makes us. Um, and I was like, you know, I could kind of, I can see that though. I can see that stories are what make us. Yeah. Because there are stories that I read as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult that still are part of me today. And it does kind of bum you out when your kids aren't into the stuff that made you so happy as a kid. Yes, it does. Yeah. Although his, although his telling of it was kind of made him out to be this jerky dad because he didn't even read it for him. He just had his lawyer take him a copy of it. And so he didn't even know. <laughs> and I'm all, so that was kind of funny. You know, it he's got this, funny. he was yeah. sick and his dad read it to him. And then, no, 
he's off on some business trip and <laughs> yeah yeah so that might have something to do with why he liked it so much and I think that was the point <laughs> was that it was personal between him and his dad yeah. <laughs> and his wife's like he gave it a try just let it go and I was like what do you mean let it go <laughs> I will not <laughs> mm. Oh, the wife. I think there's a question about that. That's a whole nother thing. That was hilarious. <laughs> okay, so now we've got question two. Goldman is in his parenthetical asides to readers, refers to Morgenstern as a satirist and the unabridged version of the Princess Bride as a satire. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines a satire as a usually topical literary composition holding up human or individual vices folly, abuses, shortcomings, to censor by means of ridicule, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Going by this definition, is the good parts version of The Princess Bride a satire? If you think it is, explain why and what is being satirized. If not, what kind of book is it? <clears throat> the good parts of it is the actual story. And so the actual story is a satire. And it, I think it's written to sort of mirror, what was it, Candid, Candide? Mm. Uh, that, ooh, what was that French guy that wrote that? Oh, I should have looked this up. <clears throat> oh my gosh, I was going to remember and now my brain's gone. <clears throat> oh, that happens to me all the time. Yeah, but I mean, because it's, it's sort of like the Cinderella story, but not. So it's the satire of Cinderella. Which is one of those universal stories that are prevalent across the entire world. So, I mean, I guess, and I didn't really think of it until you just said it, but it's almost a satire of true love. Right. Right. Yeah. Which would yeah. make total sense. And and I do, There's, I think there's um, some questions coming up about it too, but it is generally categorized as a fantasy also. And I would agree with that. Yeah, I like that it's a fantasy book mm -hmm. and I was like oh we're doing another fantasy book. yeah I like this yeah. it does have some few little magic elements sprinkled in there and and it has that feel of a fantasy so mm -hmm. yeah the princess bride is also considered to be a fantasy imagine that Shocking. it's the next question <laughs> the paperback version published by Delray Books is actually marketed that way the most, oh, the most famous fantasy novel of the 20th century is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. In what way does The Princess Bride resemble Lord of the Rings? In what ways is it different? What a great timing, right? And I right after we did The Lord of the Rings. And I was like, oh man, this is good. This is so good. Serendipity. Yeah. Um, so, like, The Lord of the Rings has that realistic magical feel to it which is what the princess bride is like it's like yes there's some magic to it there's some elements of you know other characters in it but it has the feeling of being real and that's how the princess bride is i would 100 percent agree with you i get really um possessive of the lord of the rings books like it's my only five star review on goodreads and nothing else compares to it. It stands alone. I feel like you really can't compare it to any other book. <laughs> but 
That being said, yes, you're right. It does have the feel of it being like more real life, but where the Lord of the Rings is definitely much more serious. And this is definitely like a slapstick comedy kind of. Right. So they are comparable, but yet they're worlds apart. It's also like a third of the size. <laughs> True. You can read it in one night. You really don't have to look up much many words in the dictionary. No. No, you don't. You can read it through one time and get it, whereas I've read The Lord of the Rings probably half a dozen times, and I still get more out of it every time. Um, so, yeah, that's very funny. Um, Goldman wrote this the screenplay for the film version of The Princess Bride. There are many differences between the two. Identify as many of, as you can, and why do you think Goldman made these changes? With which of his choices do you agree or disagree? So there's another book that is all about the making of the movie of The Princess Bride. It's mm -hmm. called As You Wish. And Carrie L's use, however you say his name, uh, actually wrote it. Mm. And... Um, I think that's definitely worth a read if you're really into the movie. I do like some of the changes that were made, like uh, Mad Max and his uh, interaction with, um, you know, the guys. It's, it's like, oh, it wasn't true love. I mean, that's just funnier in the movie. And the wife that he has is funnier in the movie. <laughs> I mean, there's some things that are just funnier in the movie. Definitely. And having watched the movie before I read the book, I think feel like that helped me get into those parts like because I could remember how funny it was in the in the movies and Indigo his like catchphrase is different in the book than in the movie and but I like it in the movie like it's like see I didn't catch my that father prepare to die <laughs> yeah and I noticed like when the only one I remember is when she um jumps out of the boat before they get to the cliffs and it's eels, and in the book it's sharks. Right. And I feel like that was, you know, probably easier to make an unrealistic Screaming eel. eels. Yeah, that doesn't exist, so you can't say, oh, that shark looks fake. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the movie did such a good job of sticking to the tone of the book that I didn't really notice the differences. No. Yeah. 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 It, I was like, wow. 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 And I in the in the making of the movie, he had tried to sell the screenplay and have it made numerous times and it kept falling apart and he was not going to allow the story to be butchered. He's like, This is the story, this is how it's gonna go, nobody's gonna mess it up and so um it was very true to the to the story because he he was very possessive about it. And I think that that really comes through. I can th think, uh, the the other example I can think of is um, the Anne Rice books, The Interview with a Vampire. The first, the first movie, she, Anne Rice had a lot to do with it. She was very involved in it, and it was fantastic, and it was very true to the books. The sequel to it, which was actually the third book, I literally cried when I left the movie theater because oh. I loved those books so much and it was horrible. Like worse than trash. <laughs> I get I get I rate with book to movies all the time too. Yeah. I have to watch the movie first and then read the book because otherwise I'm just like flames, 
off the side of my face, right in place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it de definitely it was worth the wait to have it done right. I'm glad he stuck to his artistic principles. All right. Why do you think that Goldman inserts himself as a character in his own novel? What other books have you read where the author adopts this narrative strategy? I don't know why he did that, but it makes it it makes it almost more compelling to read. I thought so too. I thought it made it um, first of all, it made it funnier. Yes. The, those, his asides are hilarious, especially describing his relationship with his wife and kids. I mean, it was just a hoot. <laughs> I <laughs> loved it. <clears throat> um, and I can't think of another example of that. I can't either. Yeah. I'd, we, that'd be something we'd have to Google to see if there was books that have been done like that, that we've read, but... I mean, like, I've read so many books, I forget about books that I've read. Yeah. But even but so... I couldn't come up with one, even yeah. searching through, like, my Goodreads history. I was like, no, I don't see anything here. And you would think that it would stand out, because that's unusual. I mean, there are times where, um, I, when I was listening to the Prancing Pony podcast talking about The Hobbit, they talk about breaking the fourth wall, kind of like where the author will... um you know, speak as a narrator, right. you know, a, apart from the story. But that's totally different than what's going on in this book. I think the the author's asides are the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely part of the narrative. Yes, yeah. yeah. It was <laughs> like, all I can say is that must have been like divine inspiration. Like, I, it's so original. <laughs> Um, all right, so now I think we're on question eight. Should writers draw a firm line between fact and fiction? If a writer puts himself into a story, does he have a moral obligation to be truthful about himself, or is he free to treat himself and any other real-life person similarly inserted as a fictional character? Oh, I, I, I don't think writers have any obligation to, to be 100% non-fiction. Like, they, they can just... Spew it however they want. Spin that web. <laughs> I completely and totally agree. And in fact, I would have to say that this, him being in the book as a character is a characterized version of himself. It's just so, um, I can't even think of the word. It's like so quaint. It's so, you know, you, it's your typical, they've got, you know, he's on a business trip. There's a starlet. His wife is a psychologist. And I mean, there may be elements of truth into it, but he took it way to the, um, why can't I think of words, stereotype, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. We're professionals. We know words. We do know words. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just can't recall the words from my brain. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes my mouth is like, I don't know how to pronounce this word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's so, I can pronounce it when I'm reading it in my head. What's the deal here? Right. It's like, why do my lips not work? <laughs> it works in my head. Oh. All right. When we first meet Anigo and Fezzik, they are working with Zini to kidnap Buttercup. Later, they become allies of Wesley in his efforts to rescue her. What causes Anigo and Fezzik to change, or do they really change at all during the course of the novel? I don't think they change. I they've they've had their sort of goals all along 
and they just see the man in black as like, oh, this is the only person left to help us because Vincini's gone. Like, he died. Ah, crap. We gotta come up with a new plan. The man in black. I mean, like, he's smart. He's strong. He killed Vincini for heaven's sakes. Like, yeah, he's gotta be the guy. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I don't think that they changed his characters at all, and I will say... They are my favorite characters in the book. They weren't necessarily my favorite characters in the movie, although I liked them. But in the book, I absolutely adored them. I I do love them in the book. Yeah. I I do I do. I it's a very them. sweet relationship, like the rhyming game that they have with each other. Oh my gosh, adorable. Oh, my gosh, where are you? Indigo! Indigo! It's so cute. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, I just loved that whole dynamic. And then, but really, when they were with Vizzini at the beginning, they always questioned things like, oh, do we really have to kill her? Like, I don't really want to do this. Like, they were definitely follow-along guys. But you could tell that they were kind of morally bothered by some things. Um, so yeah, they I, weren't into it. Right. I feel like when they were finally allies with Wesley and Buttercup that they felt a lot more good about themselves and what they were doing. Even though you could still technically say they were being outlaws because they were going against the prince and everything. So Yeah, the legally established government of yeah. the time. They're like, screw you. They remind <laughs> outlaws. We're stealing but... your wife. We don't care. <laughs> All right. Is Goldman's portrayal of Buttercup misogynistic? Is there a pattern in the way that women are portrayed in The Princess Bride? From the starlet Sandy Sterling to Goldman's psychoanalyst wife, Helen, to the lawyer Karloff Shog, who appears in The Buttercup's Baby's Addendum? This is a great question. Oh, it is. And I would, at first, I would say totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's my first impression too. But then but I'm like thinking this is about satire. it being a satire. I'm thinking that yes it is totally, but it's done in a way to make a point. Right. Yeah. That's that's exactly where I went with it too. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah it is. I'm like, but this is a satire. He's making a point of making it very misogynistic. Yeah. Because I mean if you think about a lot of these classic, like, true love stories and stuff, they are like that. Right. <laughs> you know. What a perfect breast. You wouldn't want to harm it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, but but it wasn't. Um, it's kind of like I've used this analogy time and time again. It's kind of like the difference between art and pornography. You know it when you see it. And it didn't make me feel icky reading those parts. So I'm thinking that the intention was pure. oh question 11 compare the relationship between men such as goldman and his father fezzik and anigo anigo and domingo and goldman and his son and those between men and women especially wesley and buttercup which are presented more positively and why is that do you think oh this is a hard question so goldman and his dad had a sort of off-ish relationship except for when he was sick and he was reading this book and then uh i would think anigo and his father were the same wouldn't you say yeah 
because you know an ego was just sort of like get out of my way i'm i'm busy i'm doing my craft until you know then he was murdered and then he was like i i shall avenge you father right you know i felt like it was almost as though it was the only way he could do something worthwhile in his dad's view was to avenge his death. Right. But then Fessick and, and Indigo, I love their relationship. It's so cute. Mm-hmm. He's like, I taught you the rhyme. Remember the rhyme. Oh, <laughs> oh that was, he remembers the rhyme. That was so adorable. It was like something about going back to the beginning, but I don't even remember the rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and and Wesley and Buttercup are are definitely presented more positively, and I think it's because she she starts off the book as a major biage, you know. Yeah, <laughs> well, I would say almost though that the all the father son relationships, including the author to his you know son Listen. in the book, all the father son relationships are troubled. Right. And even the Wesley and Buttercup relationship is um, hilarious. It, it's not. It's not something that we would imagine would be true love. No. And no. like his relationship with his wife is obviously not true love. I feel like the only true love in the whole book is Fezzik and Aniko. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> That comes off as the most sincere to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, alrighty. In Wesley's initial anger at Buttercup for agreeing to marry Humperdinck, is it fair? Based on his actions and words, including at one point striking her, might Wesley be considered an abuser? Are his demonstrated attitudes towards women reinforced or undermined by the text, both in his own story and Goldman's comments? See, I was just thinking about this when we were talking about Wesley and Buttercup's relationship, how it wasn't perfect because he was all like, you agree to marry him, you whore. And she, she was, he was like, you've never known love. She's like, I've known love. You have no idea. My heart died with day. And he was like, liar, smack, smack. And I was like, <laughs> whoa. whoa. <laughs> I was the same way. I was like, wow. <laughs> he almost is questioning her, her trust because he believes in true love will conquer all. And she like gave up on him basically right yeah. but i mean who wouldn't he was gone for like five years and pronounced dead yeah he was like he died i moved on i don't really care i'm nothing and he was like you should be dead instead of marrying this jerk and i was like wow <laughs> i mean like i don't really see how he he behaves towards other women like i don't I don't remember any other parts of the story where he's really interacting with other yeah, ladies. It's I like it's a lot of guys in the story. Definitely. It's very men. Yeah. And I think we can just put that back to like the satire part of the whole thing. All right. In the next question, I'm going to skip one. Um, so the next question is 14. In the introduction, Goldman writes, but take... Um, but take the title words, true love and high adventure. I believe, I believed that once I thought my life was going to follow that path, prayed that it would, obviously it didn't, but I don't think there's (coughs) any high adventure left anymore. 
Later he adds, and true love, you can forget about that too. Does the rest of the book offer support for these words or does it refute them? I I really, I love his, his ending about like, instead of, you know, the happy ever after ending, the sort of like, well, you know, it ended, it was good enough, right? <laughs> like, That'll work. Like, they're not super happy, but they're not, like, miserable. Like, it's just sort of a, you know, like a real relationship where there's, like, some fighting, but, yeah, they love each other. So, I mean, like, the whole part about the high adventure, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that's true, but. Well, I feel like it kind of takes the book as like this childish version of what you think your life is. Yeah. And then most people grow up and, you know, have obligations and, you know, being married is of course your true love, but then you have to figure out how to live with people and you're like, listen to them snore and like <laughs> put their clothes where you don't want them. Yeah. So I think the it's... dishes away wrong. I you know, I'm just complaining about my kids right now, but yes. <laughs> I think the book does then support that because it is like, like you said, it's not a happily ever after kind of thing. <laughs> it, and you, you think, you know, when you're growing up, I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to do, you know, fun stuff. And you're like, oh, when I was little, I was so mad at my mom. She wouldn't let me get McDonald's. And I said, when I grow up, I'm going to eat McDonald's every day. <laughs> <laughs> and she just laughed, and now I'm like, oh, I haven't been to McDonald's in like 10 years. <laughs> my younger son is like, when I grow up and I'm president, when it's my turn, I'm like, yes, when you're president, I'm going to make, you know, so that renewable energy has to be the main source of energy, and I'm going to put the planet first and all this other stuff. And if only it were that easy. Right. And you know what? That pretty much sums it up, the the essence of that question is we lose that optimism. You know, it's pretty sad, actually. <laughs> now I'm depressed. <laughs> well, it's more of an innocence than an optimism. You're right. I would agree. Total difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. All right. In another parenthetical aside from Goldman, he quotes the mother of one of his childish friends, Edith Nesser, the author of a terrific book on how we screw up our children as telling him life isn't fair, Bill. We tell our children that it is, but it's a terrible thing to do. It's not only a lie, it's a cruel lie. Life is not fair and has never been, and it's never going to be. Do these words sum up the theme of the novel? Why or why not? I I would say it's pretty close to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because they they're, they have their true love at the beginning, and then they're torn apart. They're about to act together, then they're torn apart again. She sends for him. He's being tortured. And then, I mean, like, technically, she's a married woman who's running off at the end of the story. Technically, yes. <laughs> and, you know, and it's it's sad because none of us... And I think that we do kind of perpetuate this because we don't want our children to lose that innocence. And we want them to have belief that they can um, do all these wonderful, great things that they want to do. We don't want to burst their bubble. But we, kn we do know that 
it's going to get burst eventually. Right. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's horrible. I Even saying that, I feel like a monster saying it. You know? I mean, I think I still do that to my almost grown children. You know? I think I still try and pump up their dreams, you know, a little bit. I think the world is a terrible enough place. So is it cruel? Is it a lie? I mean, I'm going to look at it as it's encouragement, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's cruel. Um, I think it's more of trying to protect them and keep them innocent for as long as you can. Yeah. Just because, you know, when you lose that innocence, it's sort of... You lose some of that happiness with it, too. Yeah. Ooh, deep question. Deep, deep question. All right. Oh, and then um, I think we'll go to the last question. Is Goldman laughing with his readers or laughing at them? I could say both. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I, I really feel like by his way of putting himself into the story, it's a little bit more leaning towards laughing with us because he kind of, no matter if it's totally fictional, which I think it is, his description of his real life, I think probably elements of it are true. So it's kind of like he's one of us. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I think you're right, though. It is a little bit of both. So the interesting part, I was like the end of the book, he's like, okay, there's, you know, like three different endings. There's the S. Morgenstern ending. You know, they write off, yay. And then like, you know, there's the, you know, other ending and then my ending. And the movie didn't do that, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot the book that had different endings. I had forgotten about that too, and I had just read the book. But I watched the movie recently also, and that the movie tends to stick into your mind more, I think. But I think it was, I think the movie was good the way that it ended. Um, when I got to the end of the book and then there was that whole edition with Buttercup's baby, I was like, I'm kind of over. <laughs> I want this to be over now. And it just kept going on and on and on. <laughs> I'll bet I don't remember much of Buttercup's baby no. either. I was just sort of like, um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> like they're like, Oh, it's a kid. I'm like, yeah, kids kind of suck sometimes. Yeah. So, <gasps> but I think we can both agree that, whether you watch the movie or read the book, that they are both worthwhile. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. I think so, too. And, you know, I, I think kids probably still do um, learn about it in school. I know we did in high school. Oh. And I know my oldest did. I don't know about the other two, their age group, but... The library had a showing of it. Okay. Way back when. Like, the kids were little, and I took them to it. And they had popcorn. It was in the boardroom. It was, you know, I was like, yay. And my my friend's uh, kids were there. Um, she has, like, four kids. They were all there, and they're like, oh, this is a really good movie. We've seen it before. My kids were like, mm, we're not going to finish this. It's time to go. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I am so deeply disappointed in you. I don't think, I think oh. that was the first time I was deeply dis. I'm like, you like Scooby-Doo, but you're not going to like the Princess Bride. Were they maybe not quite old enough? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Because I was just like. I'd be curious ah. to whether they liked it now. You know, if they were to watch it now, if they would like it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have to try watching a movie with. 
with them again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not very long movie. No. Yeah. Yeah. I know, and, like, the younger one, uh, I was watching um, the last Lord of the Rings movie, and he was like, oh, let me watch this with you. And I was like, but this is the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to make a lot of sense for you. And he was asking a lot of questions. I'm like, well, you know, this is nice perspective that I have to explain all this stuff. But I keep having to also pause a three-hour movie. <laughs> I'm never going to finish this. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. He gave up after, like, 45 minutes. I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> And then yelled at me that I hadn't finished it. I'm like, I would have finished it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. Oh, so um, for our beverage this month, uh, so I'm doing a a dry 21 days. Yay. Yay. And um, I've just been plagued with the illness this year. Um, Had the COVID, had the flu. So I'm taking a little break on my body. And so now we're tea books yeah. and broads today. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I got some Shakespearean tea from the local tea shop. She has it blended up based off of tea that was in. Oh, crap. Now I forgot which play it was in. Hmm. The Tempest, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, she has it created just from that it's peppermint lavender summer savory sweet marjoram and canandula flowers and it's delightful it's a really great tea you don't even have to put honey in it or anything it's just fine how it is it's very minty and i like Mm -hmm. it a lot so that was been our beverage tonight yep do you have any parting thoughts about the princess bride i think those questions were great i think we pretty much covered everything that i had in mind to talk about how about you the uh, the only thing we didn't talk about was I was uh, really ecstatic when uh, Count Humperdinck was finally <laughs> both in the movie and in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a real he was a real villain. <laughs> yeah. he, he definitely had the evil vibe. Like the other people, were like yeah, I'm like ugh, yeah. Ugh. That was it. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I guess that's all for tonight then. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. We'll see you next month.